0: good morning morning. let's pray together God we thank you we praise you for the way in which you have already met with us this morning we are so grateful to you for your kindness for your love for your immeasurable grace that is unending and God, we sit before you this morning as recipients of your love and of your grace. It is undeserved, it is unmerited, and yet you lavish us with this ocean of love. And we pray, O oh God, that as we sit before you in your love and your grace toward us, that you would open up our hearts and that you would enable us to hear and to see that which you want us to hear and see this morning. Shape and form us, we pray, by your word, to be your faithful people in this world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So if you are joining with us for the first time this morning, welcome. We are very glad that you have chosen to be with us this morning. And we have been, over the last several months, working through a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the first century city of Corinth. But today, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a little break from our series that uh, we've been in, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And we wanna pause and we wanna take some space beginning today and into the next couple weeks, looking together at the book of Nehemiah. And we're gonna be doing a brief series entitled Rebuild, Restore, and Renew. Now, why is it that we're taking a break from our general series uh, to look together at the book of Nehemiah? And the answer is simple. It's it's an answer that probably many of you will know. It is because we as a church right now are in a season of rebuilding. You could say we ourselves are in a series or in a season that could be marked as rebuild, restore, and renew. Renew. This church, by God's grace, has an incredible heritage of gospel ministry. Uh, over the last 132 years in the life of this community, there have been churches that have been planted out of this church. There have been leaders that have been raised up and sent out to start nonprofits that serve the poor or that uh, do apologetics work, or that engages in mission cross-culturally. This church has done an effective job of reaching children and young adults and young families throughout its history. And there have been great seasons, great periods in this church's life where God has broken out and has done really cool work. I remember sitting down with Pastor Dick Anderson a couple months back over lunch and him sharing with me over how God used this church to reach out into hippies in the canyon And he told me really fascinating stories of going and visiting the Manson House in the canyon and seeing the gospel break out there. But there's exciting work in the history of this church, isn't there? But you know, for us as a community, our desire is not simply to be a church that celebrates the past. We want to be a people who has hope for the future. And so we don't want to be simply a church that celebrates a great heritage. We want a great future as a community. We want to continue to be a faithful presence of Christ in this city and throughout the community and throughout the San Gabriel Valley. It is our longing, it is our hope to be a church that continues to raise up young leaders and send them out to serve the poor and to reach people in other cultures and places and to start new works. We wanna be a church that plants other churches. We wanna be a church that by God's grace opens up our homes on our streets and exhibits the hospitable love of God in our communities. We wanna be a people that are shaped by the wisdom of God as we engage in our vocations. And so we long for a good future together, Amen? amen? So this is our hope as a church. And yet as we look at our past and as we long for the future, we also have to be very honest about our present. This church has been in a season over the last several years that has been marked by decline. In some ways, it's also been marked by some dissension, by some disunity. And there's been some things in, in, the, in the recent history of our church that we've seen that, that, that we grieve over. And we long to be honest about our present present so that we can make appropriate changes and build into a different kind of future. And so we want to rebuild, we want to restore, and we want to renew. And this is going to take a lot if we're going to see this happen as a church. It's going to take a lot of different change among us. And change can sometimes be scary. It can be difficult. I was talking with our staff this week. We were in a meeting, and... uh, I had mentioned to the staff because some of you will know if you were around here when I was candidating that one of the words that I tried to use more than any other word when I was candidating was the word change, and I did this intentionally so that we could all know what we were getting into. And of course, it wasn't just me. Uh, the leadership of this church was wanting change, and that's why it felt like a good match. And so I was talking with our staff this week, and I said, "Yeah, I said I've actually had a couple people." come up to me and they've said, hey, um, Josh, you keep talking about change. When are we going to see more of this great change you're talking about? And uh, and then Alvar piped up and he said, boy, you must be talking to different people than I am. (laughs) Not everyone feels the same way about change. I think for a lot of us, change creates anxiety. We are fearful and we're worried about what might happen. We are afraid of change. And of course, during seasons of change, it can actually be a, a very vital time because the fallow ground is being broken up. And, and that's an opportunity for new planting and for new fruitfulness. But it's also an opportunity for new seeds of discord to take root because people don't like change and there's divisions and dissensions and I don't like this and I don't, you know. But, um, and so, so we need to lock arms together and talk together about what this new season of change is is going to look like. Now, some say, well, what kind of changes are we talking about that's ahead? Well, first, there's gonna be changes in this facility. In fact, uh, in three weeks from now, we as a congregation are gonna move across the street over to Old North Church for a season where the interior of this sanctuary is gonna be revitalized. And we're gonna to, you know, touch some cosmetic things like carpet and paint and lights and, and things like this. But that's really just the first part of a larger season of change in our facility. Uh, We've been working together with a contractor or with an architect in order to create a design that we think would make us more effective as a church working into the future. And so it'll touch, it'll create things like uh, if we go through with this facility remodel in the future, uh, a new elevator in the right outside these doors in order to help those who are in a wheelchair or who are, have a walker or who have a stroller or whatever, navigate our facility a little bit better. Uh, believe it or not, we're actually thinking of, of adding men's restrooms upstairs <laughs> because we have one stall. <laughs> it's important stuff. And so that's gonna be a major renovation project down the road, but as sort of the first phase of that project, we are going to invest some resources into revitalizing this space right here. And, and at the end of our service, just before I say the benediction, I'm gonna share with you a way in which you could get involved in that project initially. But there's gonna be facility changes. Of course, you've been seeing there's been staffing changes. We've talked about a name change. There's gonna be a website changes and design changes. And of course, those are are a lot of the superficial kind of changes. The real change that needs to take place is the change in our hearts, amen, Amen. so that we become the kind of people that actually have open, gracious, hospitable hearts toward our neighbors. You know, it struck me, I uh, came down on the 4th of July and the 3rd of July, right in the heart of Sierra Madre. There is so much cool stuff that happened. I mean, this place comes alive during the 4th of July. I had no idea. You know, and it is so cool watching, I mean there there were just so many young families across the street just filling that park, you know? And then I looked over at our church and it was striking to me how this it was just dark and cold and closed. And I just thought I hope that is not a reflection of the community of people that are here. I hope that we are not a community that withdraws in and on ourselves as opposed to a group of people that is engaged. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you right now. God has called us to do. He's called us to love. Let's let's pray together as ourselves. And how can you love your neighbor if you don't know their name, if you're not engaged in their life? And so there's deep change that needs to happen in our own hearts and lives. And I know so many of you are already there. You've been there. You don't need to hear that. But for some of us, that may be a message that we need to hear. And so there's change coming. Change can be fearful. Change can create anxiety. And so we're turning to the book of Nehemiah in order to give us some guidance some help, some inspiration, I guess I could say, for us as we enter into this new season of building and change. And this morning, we want to begin by looking at where Nehemiah began his own building project, where he began his own work of renewal and restoration. And it's here in chapter one, and we're going to see three things that sort of launched him off in this work. And and I I hope it is my prayer that as we look at these three, three things that we see in Nehemiah, that these are three things that we ourselves will embrace, that will take us outside of ourselves as we engage into this new season of building. So let's look together at Nehemiah chapter one, and we're going to look at it under three headings. Number one, we are going to see that what, what is it that launched Nehemiah into building? Number one, he saw the problem. Number two, we're going to see that he owned the problem. And number three, we're going to see that he embraced the solution. And so if we're going to engage well in the work ahead in this new season, number one, we need to see the problem. We need to own the problem. And then we need to embrace the solution. All right, so let's go. Let's let's look at these three things in Nehemiah 1. So, number one, Nehemiah saw the problem. Look what it says in chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanini, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So let's jump into this. Now, who is Nehemiah? Well, our text says first that he was the son of Hakaliah. Don't know who that is, and so that's not going to be much good to us. But we do know that um, even though we don't know much about him, we know that he was a very short man because his name was Nehemiah. That was so stupid and bad and corny. <laughs> I'm not going to do that next service. No, I will do it next service. But we do know that he was a cupbearer to the king. So that meant that Nehemiah was a man who lived on the edge, his job demanded it. To be the cupbearer to the king produced immense clarity for one. You drank the stuff, and if it were bad, you were a goner, and long live the king. And so you needed to be shrewd, have an eye for detail. You would need to be able to gauge character and pay attention to those around you, especially since this position was of such strategic importance. And so it was a risky job, and as it is, often with great risk comes great reward. And so Nehemiah lived a very comfortable life. He lived in the palace He had access to power. He was a confidant to the king. And so here he was living in the palace, a confidant to the king, engaged in this kind of risky but high reward kind of job. And here it is in this place that he gets word from his brother Hanani that the walls in Jerusalem have been broken down and they are in ruins. They've been burned by fire. And the text is going to tell us that when Nehemiah hears this problem, notice what his response is, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And so Nehemiah hears the words that the the, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down, they're burned by fire, and he is deeply burdened, he's depressed, he's mourning, he's weeping for days. Why? Why? I mean, what is it that, that creates such a deep depression when he hears about the walls? I mean, what's the deal with the walls in Jerusalem? Now, to understand the problem, you need to understand something of the history. And so, can I just take two or three minutes and give you the history here? Sure, all right, here we go, ready or not. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> Everything became a mess. In light of the problem, God called Abraham to form a great family, the nation of Israel, who would be the bearers of his great plan to redeem and heal this broken, fallen creation. And then he formed the nation into this great nation, and he gave them a temple, he gave them a key city, and then he gave them promises and he said that one day their city Jerusalem would be the very center of all creation and from Jerusalem God's good news would go out to all the peoples of the earth and the nations of the world would pour into the city and receive from the Jewish king wisdom to live and to, and, and to bring justice to the world. And so God began to build the nation of Israel underneath the leadership of King David and King Solomon, and they established Jerusalem as the capital, and they set the temple right in the center of the city. But then after a succession of some real bad kings, a nation from the north, Babylon, came and invaded Jerusalem, and they destroyed the city, they leveled it, and they destroyed the temple, and then they took the children of Israel off into exile in Babylon, And so there are these psalms of lament that say, when we sat by the rivers in Babylon, we wept. Because there in Babylon, they remembered the old glory of the city Jerusalem and of the temple and of the glory of God. But then, after the Babylonian Empire, who had taken them into exile, was conquered by the Persian Empire, the leader of the Persian Empire named Cyrus issued a decree that all of the exiles could actually return back to their home of origin, and rebuild the temple. And so a a remnant of Jews went back to the city of Jerusalem, and they began to rebuild the city, and then they began to rebuild the temple underneath the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. Can we all say that? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. And then after Zerubbabel, another man named Ezra came in, and after the temple was restored, Ezra came in and he taught the law. But then after a few decades, the people began to forget the law and the temple began to get neglected and the walls of the city were actually never built. And as it were, nobody actually lived in the city of Jerusalem because there were no walls to protect the city. They were still ransacked and still you know, trampled down. There were probably some enemies that came in and made things even worse. And it is this news Nehemiah hears. He hears about how the walls of the city are broken down and burned with fire. And this absolutely wrecks Nehemiah. He is broken. He is mourning. And the reason why, it's not so much simply because of walls. It's because for Nehemiah, the walls represented so much more than walls. The integrity of the city of Jerusalem The integrity and the mission of the people of God, Israel, were what was at stake. What was at stake was God's plan of redemption going forth to all of the nations from the center of the city, and it is this that wrecked Nehemiah. And so let me just ask you this, do you understand the true nature of the problem we face? You know, as we begin to talk about the future of our church and as I begin to talk about change, you know, we talk about things like paint and carpet and lights and, and you know, websites and, and staffing. And you can talk about neighboring and things like this. And, and in the grand scheme of things, these things can feel kind of small. And yet each one of these items is about so much more than each individual item. Something more is at stake. And what is at stake? Well, I believe that we are living in a time of transition in our country right now. I remember talking with uh, Pastor Robert uh, a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me, he said, he said, you know, he was in Holland to defend his dissertation uh, last year. And he said, Holland is an interesting place. They have an interesting history because he said there was one generation in Holland where like 90% of the country was, were churchgoers. Go- they, they were followers of Jesus, And then he said there was a transitional generation and then in the third generation only 10 percent of the country were attending church and he said and i believe that we in america right now we may be in a transitionary generation where we are on the road to becoming like western europe and it's true when you look at the stats and you look at the amount of young people that are going to church it used to be that When uh, kids, they'd go up in youth group and then they'd go and they'd maybe sow their wild oats in college or whatever. But then when they got married and they had kids, they'd oftentimes wind their way back into church. And what more and more of the studies are finding is that young parents are just not coming back into church. And of course, for me, this isn't about whether or not people are going to church. It's about whether or not we are learning how to live the way of Jesus together in community. That's what church is about. It's about whether or not we are experiencing the love of God displayed for us in Jesus Christ. That's what it's about, being changed by this love. And more and more churches in our nation, more and more churches that are actually right in the heart of communities like this one, are dying. And they're becoming other things. And so what's at stake is the mission of God for the next generation. And that's why what we do Matters. That's why we cannot just sit back and do nothing. We have got to act, we have got to change, and we have got to do it now. We don't have another generation. We have got to act together, and we've got to do it unified, and we've got to do it now. Now somebody says, well, I don't, I don't really like though the specific changes you're making. I don't really like the specific ideas you have. And it reminds me of uh, a story told of the great evangelist D.L. Moody. Somebody came up to him one time and he said, you know what, I don't like the way you do evangelism. And D.L. Moody said, well, I don't like it much either. And he said, how do you do evangelism? And he said, well, I, uh, I, I don't. And he said, well, I like the way I do it better than the way you don't do it. And look, I don't claim to say that every change that we're going to make in the next year or whatever is going to be exactly on target, the specific thing and the only thing that could be done. But I am saying that we cannot sit back and do nothing. We have got to act. And too often it happens in organizations and in churches that we wait until we have all of the answers in order to act and to make changes. And we do not have that luxury. You will not have all the answers. You have to act and you have to do it now. And act we will because we see the weight of the problem. What is at stake is nothing less than a faithful witness to Jesus. What's at stake is the mission of God. What's at stake is the healing of the nations. What's at stake is the justice bringing, healing, shalom bringing, rule of God breaking out in the world. And all of that matters, doesn't it? And so Nehemiah recognized the nature of the problem. He's like, like, man, something extreme is at stake here. These walls are broken down. But not only did he see the weight of the problem, but secondly, I want you to see that he not only saw the problem, but Nehemiah owned the problem. Now, where was Nehemiah when he received this news of the walls being broken in Jerusalem? Well, the answer is told us. In verse one, it says, now it happened in the months of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Stop there. What is Susa, the citadel? Well, Susa was the capital of the Persian empire. And so you can see the Persian empire right there. You probably can't see it. This may be a terribly unhelpful map, but if you can look closely where it says Persia down there, if you just kind of go up from there, you'll see a star. It says Susa. And then I want you to see where Jerusalem is doesn't look like a great deal of space, but that's actually 800 miles. And this is before plane travel. If Nehemiah wanted to get there, he would have to take a long journey. And it would probably be on camel or on donkey or something like this. And it would be painful and it would be long and whatnot. And It is here that Nehemiah hears about this problem and he is wrecked by the problem. And then what is so striking to us about this story is Nehemiah takes ownership of this problem, 800 miles away from it. Now I can imagine Nehemiah, he could have said, look guys, I have got problems of my own. You know, he's the cupbearer to the king. This is a dangerous job. Every day he's in danger of being poisoned. And he could have said, look, it's a bummer that the walls 800 miles away are broken down, that Jerusalem is not being built. But look, that's their problem. I've got my own problems. I'm dealing with my own stuff. I work hard. And and it's terrible that it's happening to them, but it's just not my problem. But he doesn't say that instead, Nehemiah owns the problem. So often we don't get into God's work Because the only problems that we own are our own problems. The only problems that concern us are the problems that concern us. But God's people get to work in God's kingdom when they look beyond themselves and their problems and they own a bigger problem. They see themselves playing a role in problems bigger than ourselves. One of my favorite stories of this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many of you will know, was a leader in the underground church under the Third Reich in Germany, but there was a time in in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life when he actually traveled to the U.S. just as Hitler was coming to power, and he was offered a cush job at Union Seminary in New York and an apartment right in the heart of the city, which to me that sounds like a dream, working at a Christian, you know, you're working at a seminary in the heart of a city like, like New York, Awesome. And he was given this cush job, and he kept receiving news about how his family members, how his friends, how the church was suffering under the Third Reich. And it just broke him. It wrecked him. Like Nehemiah, he was weeping. He was broken. And he chose to take ownership of the problem, and he traveled back to Germany and his friend said, why are you going there? What, you know, like, you, you can be safe here. You don't need to go there. And it's because he saw a problem that was bigger than his own problems. And he took ownership for it. Look, I know that you have problems. Some of you have problems with prodigal kids. Some of you have problems with your health. Some of you have problems with your marriage. Some of you have problems with your finances. We all got problems, amen? I mean, that's something, we, wow, we do, don't we? But we got problems. But listen, people of God move into the work of God when we see problems bigger than our own problems. And there is a problem in our culture, in our world right now, where more and more we are increasingly moving into a post-Christian, secular age, where more and more people are being absorbed by technology and consumerism, materialism, lives. More and more for people are becoming miserable and people are depressed. Depression is at epidemic highs. People are taking pain medications and depression meds and all kinds of things in our culture, and we're we're medicating ourselves, and we're trying to forget and numb ourselves from the meaninglessness of life. And yet Jesus Christ breaks in as a light into the darkness, and the church has a privilege of bearing witness to the strong, saving light of Jesus Christ. This is our call. This is our mission. And so we need to own this mission, And for us, that means let's take ownership of the work that lies before us. That means we don't just sit back and be critics all the time and complaining all the time. Not that any of you do that. And I'm serious, many of you are so engaged and you're so invested and you have been so praying for this church and we are so grateful for you. Like, I can't tell you how grateful I am for so many of you who have poured out tears in prayer for this church and who've brought us to this place. Praise God for you. But we've got work ahead, and so let's take ownership of this. And how do you take ownership of the problem? Well, let me suggest some ways. When we launch out new community groups under the leadership of Pastor John in the fall, you can become a group leader You can open up your home. You can participate in those groups and invest your life into other people and live openly before people and help care for people in the group. That's one way you could do it. You could open up your home and show hospitality to your neighbors. You could actually start getting to know everyone's name on your street and extending to them love through your actions. You could invest financially in the building projects that we have ahead. Stuff takes money, and so we're going to raise some money up ahead. I mean, there's many different ways we can get engaged in the work, but take ownership of the problem. This is not someone else's problem. This is our problem. We need to own it. This is what Nehemiah did. He not only saw the problem, but he took ownership of the problem. We could press this a little bit further. He didn't just take ownership of the problem. He was wrecked by the problem. He was broken by it. You know, it reminds me, his, his reaction here kind of reminds me of, uh, do you remember Popeye, the sailor man? Do you remember when Olive Oil would get in trouble? His little saying that he'd rattle off. He'd say, that's all I can stands, and I can't stands it no more. You know, and then he burst into action. And I think we need as a community to have a Popeye moment where we said, that's all we can stand. We can't stand it no more. We're gonna, well, let's have a way with passive aggressive behavior in the church. Let's have a way with dissensions. Let's have a way with quibbling over little things. Let's have a way with being absorbed in ourselves and our own possessions and our materialism and our self-absorbed lifestyle and all of our technology. Let's break out of that and move into active neighbor love and move into the mission of God and move into sacrificial living and move into trying to understand people and love people well. Let's move. It's all I can stand. I can. Stands it no more. I can remember, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons why I'm here, I have to tell you, is because one of the things that I can't stand is I can't stands when you have like beautiful church architecture. I love beautiful church architecture. I can't stand it when there are beautiful churches that sit in the heart of communities. These durable, historic structures that reflect the durable, historic nature of the faith. Right in the heart of the community, because the people of God are intended to be a faithful presence of the love of Christ through our actions, right in the heart of the community. And it breaks my heart. I can't stand it when these churches get smaller and smaller and older and older, and then they just die. And what I can't stand even more is when they die because people are afraid of change, and they get stubborn, and they don't want something else happening. So Nehemiah, he saw the problem. Secondly, he owned the problem. But thirdly, I want you to see that Nehemiah embraced the solution. He embraced the solution. So Nehemiah hears about this. He's broken by it. And then, look at what it says. As soon as I heard these words, he says, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah after he sees the problem, he turns to the only one who can do something about the problem, and that's not Nehemiah, it's God. Who is Nehemiah anyway? I mean, Nehemiah could have, like, Nehemiah, he's just the son of Hakaliah. And what a bummer just to be the son of Hakaliah. I mean, he was just knee high, Maya. Like, he was not that impressive. And he knew that. In fact, as the prayer goes on, he starts confessing his own sins. He recognizes that he himself is a broken man. He doesn't think like, "I'm God's gift to the world." You know Jerusalem is just waiting for a, a bright star in the sky like me to show up. I'm what this city needs. I am the change it will bring." No, Nehemiah doesn't say any of that. Nehemiah knew he was a mess. He knew he was needy, He knew he wasn't nobody. But he was convinced that there was a God in heaven who has a plan for this world. He knew that there was a God in heaven who is steadfast in his love and immeasurable in his power and that this God had a plan to redeem the world and that the broken walls were nothing for this God. And friends, I believe that God can do above and beyond all that we can ask or think together in the years ahead. I have zero confidence in my own personal abilities and powers. I don't have a lot of confidence in our elders. I love them, but they're not going to be the guys that are going to transform this world. I don't have a lot of confidence in this church. In fact, I don't care which pastor or which elders or which church you have. We should take no human confidence in in that. Our confidence is in the power of God who can shake heaven and earth with his love and who has broken into this world in the death and resurrection of Jesus The God who has broken the power of sin and death and darkness and who set the captives free and continues to do so. This is our confidence, friends. This is what we rely on as God to empower the people of God to do the work of God. And Nehemiah recognized that he didn't have what it takes. But what I love about this story... And what I love about all the stories in the Old Testament, you know, when you look at all the great figures in the Old Testament, the great stories in the Old Testament, I mean, none of these leaders are great heroes. I mean, the Bible is not a story of a bunch of great heroes. The Bible is a story of, of a bunch of men and women who oftentimes get it all wrong and who mess everything up and who mess, make a mess of their lives. The Bible is not a story of a bunch of human heroes. The Bible is a story of one hero, and all the people in the Old Testament, including Nehemiah, point to this one hero. See, Nehemiah left the palace to go into the rubble. Know anybody else who left the palace to go into the rubble? You know Jesus Christ, from all eternity past, dwelling in the glory, the palace with his Father and with the Holy Spirit, one God, eternity, forever. And the eternal Son leaves the palace and he enters into the rubble so that your lives and my lives might be rebuilt. You are here today because God in Christ has left the palace and entered into the rubble so that he might rebuild you. Jesus is building not just individuals. He's building a church. And we have the joy, we have the privilege of participating with him in this building project. Will you see the problem? Will you own the problem? Will you embrace the solution? Let's do that together, amen? Amen. This time I want to invite our band up. We're going to end this morning doing what we've done every other week now for the last few months. We're going to end our service together at the Lord's table. And I think this is an important place for us to end this morning and as we move ahead. Because it is this table, it is the broken body and the shed blood of Christ that is at the heart of God's building project ironically, the way God builds up our lives is by first allowing himself in Christ to be crushed and to be taken down. And oftentimes when we engage in the building work of God, it means we have to engage in a willingness to allow some of our own desires, some of our self-centered interests to die and be crushed so that we might give ourselves to something bigger than ourselves. this is what God has done in Christ. And it's important that we we begin this kind of new season of building at the table because it is this table not only that shows us how God's work continues, but it's it's at the table that we're reminded that as we continue in the work, we do so as a body that has been made one in Jesus Christ. We who are many have been brought together as one family in Jesus Christ. And so as we move forward together, let's do it with love and with grace and with humility and with the spirit of connecting with each other, pouring into each other, locking arms together, where we have issues, dealing with them well and faithfully, with honesty and truth and directly, because God has made us one body to pursue this one mission that he has given us. A little word of, word of instruction of what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to invite our servers to come forward. In fact, our servers can go to the tables.